0: Neuro Pathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neuro rehab, and psychiatry. The complexity of the human extremity, particularly
1: the upper extremity in the hand, allows us to interact with the world. Prosthetics have struggled to recreate the intuitive motor control, light touch sensation, and proprioception of the innate limb in a manner that reflects the complexity of its native form and function. Nevertheless, recent advances in prosthetic technology, surgical innovations, and enhanced rehabilitation appear promising for patients with limb loss who hope to return to their pre-injury level of function. In today's episode of Neural Pathways, we're discussing advances in prosthetic function. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neurooncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I am very pleased to have Dr. Paul Morosco join me for today's conversation. Dr. Morasco is an associate professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering in Cleveland Clinic's Lerner Research Institute. Paul, welcome to Neural Pathways.
2: Well, thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me, and I'm very excited to have a conversation.
1: So, Paul, I read that, uh, kind of shocked me, I read that there are about 2 million amputees uh, currently in the United States. Uh, and, you know, I grew up, uh, I hate to say my age, but, you know, I grew up in the, 60s and 70s and uh, Lee Majors was the uh, six million dollar man at that point and I I suppose $6 million wouldn't get us much today, uh, although it was at that time. So, you know, back in the 70s, there was a lot of interest in all of this. But I'm sure times have changed, and I'm really looking forward to to learning more about it today. Uh, So in terms of advances in prosthetic function, can you set the stage for us? What has been the historical function of artificial limbs?
2: The historical function of the artificial limbs is really... Really to try and and restore some of that lost function. I mean, you know, it's a situation where from the perspective of lower limbs, just having simply something to walk on, right? In order, instead of walking around on crutches, having something to actually step on, those have been around for, actually, there's evidence of of functional prosthetic toes that fit in a socket from the 16th dynasty in, in Egypt. And so, you know, these technologies have actually been around for quite a while. And the interesting thing about it is these technologies, you know, they've settled on some of these early designs and they've essentially worked, you know, through, through our history up until modern times. You know, for the feet and for the legs, it's important just to restore something that stands and something that allows you to stand. The upper limbs are more complex, right, because we actually, we really engage in sort of by manual manipulation with things. We hold things, you know, our hands are part of the expressive architecture that we engage with every day. Some people would argue, but you know, in general, you know, the upper limbs are are a bit more of a complex system. And and upper limb prosthetics, you know, really you know, early on from the 15th century, you know, there's been mechanical replacements for the upper limb, but mostly cosmetic and some, you know, basic, just kind of metal devices to hold things. Um, during the Civil War, the the prosthetic technology started to evolve much much faster. Um, we actually saw some some systems that you could actually manipulate objects with cable operated systems, things like that. And in World War II, a lot of these upper limb designs really settled in. And it's those things that we see every day on people. You know, it, typically you know you see them still out in public, you see them in the clinic, and it's these. It's these body-powered or muscle-powered hooks that run on cables. So they're called Bowden cables, essentially bicycle cables. And then, you know, during World War II and, and afterwards, myoelectric prostheses came on board, and those were, those were motor-driven prostheses. The, bio, the body-powered hooks are still used every day today. Myoelectric devices are used. And that's really where that's kind of the state of our workspace. Um, these devices are very functional. And and people use them and they're relatively relatively inexpensive to fit and relatively easy to train with. And so that is our standard of care. Um technology that really reached its zenith after World War Two.
1: So your research, I'm very excited to to learn more about this. Your research at the Cleveland Clinic has been dedicated to modifying uh, what you just discussed, the standard of care for patients with primarily upper limb amputations. Can you elaborate on these developments with the new bionic system?
2: Yeah, you know, it really boils down to to control and feedback. Um, So one of the reasons that these these cable-operated and motorized limbs um, have remained the standard of cares because anything greater than just a couple of degrees of freedom, essentially an open, a close, a wrist rotation, you a, an elbow flex, an extension, those, you know, once you start having to control those joints simultaneously, when you're left with what's called two-site myoelectric control, which is essentially tapping into the electrical signals of the remaining muscles after the amputation, um, you flex your biceps to get the arm to flex and you flex your triceps to get the arm to extend. And then you have to go through state switching in order to be able to control each of those individual joints. So it's what you might refer to as a very oppressive control system, right? It's difficult to use an arm like an arm when you're, when you're stuck opening and closing your hand and state switching and then rotating your wrist and then state switching and then flexing your elbow. And so what the bionic technologies have done, what we really work on is providing more simultaneous degrees of freedom, right? So the idea is that we can control multiple joints simultaneously, much more like a human arm works versus this sequential control that typical standard of care prosthetics use. And then the feedback is, a, is an entirely different workspace around that as well. Essentially, a, a prosthesis doesn't feel. It's a, it's a numb tool that's on the end of your arm, and you can't really, you know, you can't feel with it. And, 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 and since you can't feel with it, you can't really engage in those normal intuitive behaviors that you use every day. And it, it also essentially sort of runs into this idea that it, it's separate from you, right? It's, it's a tool, and it's not part of your body, and it's not part of, as I mentioned earlier, this kind of expressive architecture that we engage with every day.
1: So, I think this is getting to the area of targeted sensory and motor reinnervation. innervation uh, Can you talk to me about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the really exciting things about prosthetics right now is is there's actually many technologies for, for control and feedback that are starting to mature. And so, you know, we're seeing across the board, um, there's different offerings for your ability to control multiple joints of a prosthesis. We've got access to individual digit control and things like that. So now we're starting to see these anthropomorphic hands show up that can actually be used because they're they're highly dexterous and highly functional, and now people can, can actually use them and, and control them. From our perspective, our particular neural machine interface that exists in a in a in sort of a milieu of different uh, neural machine interfaces, um, this one's actually really kind of interesting. It was developed in Chicago at the Shirley Ryan Institute by Dr. Todd Kuyken back in the early 2000s. And essentially, the procedure is that after, after an amputation, those remaining nerves are just left blind-ended in the arm, but they still contain all the neural control and feedback information. And so what you can do is denervate the muscles at the amputation site and provide a receptive environment to surgically transfer these amputated limb nerves to, and then they'll, they'll actually compete for re targets in the muscle. It was a serendipitous discovery, um, but it turns out if you denervate the skin as well, the sensory nerves will actually reinnervate the skin itself. They'll they'll move their way out and find you know receptive neural targets in the skin. And so what you end up with is a neural, it's a biological neural machine interface. And the, essentially, what happens is the amputee thinks about moving their arm the way that they used to. That signal goes down the nerve, and instead of going to the muscles of the arm that it used to control. It now goes to reinnervated targets in the residual limb muscles. And then those muscles contract just like they did before they were amputated. Only now the contraction maps to that person's thought about how they want to move the arm, you know, versus its original function. And we go in with a computerized prosthesis and we read those. We can read those individual little contractions. Um, in different and nuanced ways to essentially intuitively control a prosthetic limb. So the way that it works now is the person with an amputation thinks about moving their limb, and then the, the computerized system picks up that movement intent, and then it transfers it or translates it to the appropriate movement of the prosthesis, and it all happens simultaneously. So they think about moving, and the prosthesis responds accordingly. And then, with the sensory side of things, since those those sensory nerves actually reinnervate the skin, and now it turns out they also reinnervate the muscles, which is one of our primary places where we work. When you get the feed, uh, essentially, to get the feedback, um, we either use small little touch robots that touch the skin, the reinnervated skin, and then we map that to the digits of the prosthesis. So when the sensors on the prosthesis feels touch, the the robot translates that information. To a little robotic devices that push on the reinnervated skin. And then the amputee feels that touch as though it's actually their own hand. From the proprioceptive perspective, we actually can provide, this is where it starts getting really interesting and exciting. We actually we leverage perceptual illusions of limb movement by vibrating the re muscle sensory receptors, because your muscles actually have sensors inside them that tell you what your limbs are doing and we go in and we actually use cognitive and perceptual approaches to essentially tap into people's perceptual integration system and then push in illusions of complex grip conformations. and and so we um, you know my lab really works on cognition and perception and we actually can provide these really highly detailed synergistic grip percepts of the hand closing into a fist or down into a pinch, and all sorts of different stuff.
1: So Paul, it sounds a lot like mind control.
2: <laughs> I know. We do, it's, you know. It's really interesting. It's actually using the mechanisms that your brain uses to feel and to perceive and to understand the world around it, and to really provide that information back in.
1: And what's the time frame that you're looking at here to see this reinnervation?
2: Uh, it's actually really rapid. It's it's a fascinating thing. You know, typically, you know, uh, uh, nerve regeneration is about a millimeter a day. Um, and it takes quite a long time for, you know, any kind of a, just a basic nerve injury to to heal. Um, targeted re is a different sort of a different animal um, since you essentially transfer these large limb nerves to a small denervated nerve stump. Um, and then there's a high level of competition that occurs at the reinnervation site. And they actually re reinnervate very rapidly. Uh, much quicker probably a third of the time of a normal re-innervation.
1: and I'm curious it does it matter the hemisphere or the dominance uh, left or right hemisphere
2: you know it's it's interesting so we have not found that that it matters we can see hemisphere specific effects and the the interesting the kind of fun and interesting thing about it is that the post reinnervation you know after they've had these neural machine interfaces and then you know, and then the other part of that equation is actually hooking hooking these systems up in a meaningful way so that they provide the physiologically appropriate sensation and movement. We actually see very typical type of able bodied sort of you know uh, separations of function, changes in the way that the brain processes information from side to side, and it's it's very reflective of the of the original system.
1: So being a child of the. 50s and 60s, you know, thalidomide was around that caused a lot of limbs not to form. Is this type of system just for those that have had an amputation? What if they're born without a limb? Could they uh, undergo this type of a process or no?
2: Well, you know, that's, I mean, that's a really, that's a a quite a deep conversation to be had (laughs) to dive into to start with. You know, most of the amputations that we deal with are traumatic in their upper limb, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Presumably, there are people that are investigating sort of approaches in uh, congenital limb difference. But one of the big questions around this is that if you're not born with a limb, right, do you actually have the sensory and motor infrastructure, the cortical motor sensory and motor infrastructure to actually support that functionality? Mm-hmm. Right. So it, in many respects, it has to be it has to physically be there first and have been wired up first and in order to be able to use it. But I will say that I have colleagues that are actually looking into that actively. And, and, and there's, you know, there's actually conversation about whether, you know, what, the jury's presumably still out on that. So I don't have a definitive answer for you.
1: Is there an ideal age? Too young, not good enough, too old?
2: That was a really interesting thing because, you know, the, the the typical sort of school of thought right, to begin was that if you sever a nerve and then it degenerates, right, it goes through wallering and de- degeneration and then it recedes back and then that nerve becomes useless, right? And so when these surgeries were first done, they wouldn't do anyone that was further than 18 months out after their injury. Now, the really exciting part about this is that it turns out that that neural infrastructure actually stays intact. And it's almost as though the nerve is essentially waiting for something like this to happen, for this active regeneration to occur. And now it turns out that the neural architecture stays in place and functional, and is fully operational years and decades after an amputation. And so, you know, when it was first done, it was only after eighteen months. But then we learned very rapidly. That you can do this essentially with anyone. And as soon as you snip the end of that nerve to prepare it for the targeted reinnervation, it wakes right back up again, and you can you can move it and use it to surgically reinnervate a target system. And it turns out that actually that's the case also with some of the the electrical neural interfaces as well. That that architecture still seems to be functional and intact even years afterwards. So it's yeah a very exciting part of this field that opens a lot of doors for us.
1: So any uh, patient stories you can share with us?
2: <laughs> I mean, you know, we have such amazing patients. You know, it's interesting. Most of the people that we work with in the upper limb, the targeted reinnervation procedure was originally developed for people with very high-level amputations who, who couldn't utilize a typical prosthesis, right, because the fitting is so difficult and the control sites are gone. And so, you know, most of the people that, that we work with are essentially shoulder disarticulation. So someone who's missing their limb all the way up to their shoulder, or high transhumerals, which is somebody who's missing their limb, you know, through the midpoint or up the upper part of their upper arm. And so, you know, there's a tremendous loss of functionality associated with that. You know, so I mean, the patient stories themselves, what's so neat about it is, is our patients are our, our study participants. I, I, I shouldn't actually call them patients because they're, they're, they're research collaborators with us. And, and they've, they enter into this kind of equation with us to say, you know, really, we want to try and do something different. We know that this is really hard. And then they, they work with us. And then they, they're every bit a part of the research team as we are. And we actually, I mean, the beautiful part about it is we can do all these really interesting and exciting things with the uh, neural re and with the bionic arms and with all the cognitive and perceptual sort of interactions that we engage with. but then we can have a conversation. Right And we can have we can talk with the people that we're working with, and we can sit down and we can get their impressions on things, and we can have these conversations. and the the really uh, one of the exciting parts about it is that you know we've learned that that there's actually two systems that we can communicate with through these bionic interfaces. um there's essentially there's essentially this the system, which is all of the mechanistic components that the body uses to think and to move and to to behave autonomously, that all run outside of conscious perception. And then there's the self-referential eye, essentially the person, the same person that you and I are talking to right now. This this sort of cognitive construct that's able to look into the system and have opinions about what's going on. And one of the very exciting, one of our great patient stories is um, one of the individuals that we've been working with, one of our great colleagues from Canada, his self-referential eye had a really different idea about what was going on in relationship to his actual system. And even though he was he said to us, you know i just don't I just don't get this. This is really frustrating. It doesn't make sense to me. Turns out his system just worked like magic, right? Like his system actually returned to able-bodied function, and he had no idea. And it was a real sea change for us. you know, just that simple conversation about what he was thinking and what we were seeing and being able to have that interaction and that talk totally changed the world for us. Because then we realized that we actually need to actually address and talk to and engage with two entirely different systems that have different needs and expectations. And if we can get into the system where that you don't have to consciously perceive, then essentially all of those behaviors and things that you do naturally that you don't ever attend to we can get the prosthesis to engage with those, and then suddenly now it's much, much easier to use and is intuitive, and then you don't even know that you're operating it more effectively.
1: Can uh, you talk to us a little bit about your collaborative efforts with the Cerebrovascular Center?
2: You know, we really, you know, we tap into the perceptual integration system the, about people essentially how they, how they feel, like how their brains recognize their limbs as being human, and how how their brain uses sort of the model of the world that it has built around it in order to make judgments about how it's going to move and actually um, how it responds to the movements that it makes. Essentially, you know, thinking forward, predicting behaviors and then compensating for errors. And so one of those systems, um, it's essentially your system of intuitive movement. You have a model of the world that you build in your head, right? It's it's called your internal model, and it, it's everything that you know about the the functionality of the world. And when you move and you make movements and you engage in movements, your brain says, you know, I think that I'm going to move this way, and then it gets feedback back from the muscles and say, says, did I did I move the way that I thought that I was going to move? And we kind of learned about the really the basic sort of how the system was working from a neural machine interface perspective and from a, from a movement prediction perspective. And we realized that sometimes, you know, when you lose these sensory feedback systems, your brain loses the ability to, to know what it did, right? And then it loses the ability to correct for its own errors. And it loses the ability to learn from experience. And we realized that we had some colleagues who work in stroke, and we realized that there's a you know subset of strokes where people's motor system is relatively intact, right? But then they have very you know they have very clear and, and present motor deficits, and you know intuitively you you say to yourself, well, the motor system's working, why can't they move very well? And we looked at it from the sensory perspective and said, you know, what if these what if these strokes are actually hitting the sensory system? And everything's intact with the motor system. The motor system knows how to behave, but it just doesn't know what it did and can't correct for its own errors. And so we used our bionic interface and instead of doing the re system, we just went to the residual nerves left after the stroke. Presumably there's a few open channels there. And then we used our, our, our robotic bionic feedback system to amplify and inject the appropriate response of the movement that these individuals made. And so they reach out, and then we essentially use a loudspeaker through our bionic interfaces to say, you're moving out, right? And, you know, when they pull their arm back, we yell in over the top of it, you're pulling your arm back. And we do that through those physiological channels. And what happened was as soon as we turned that system on, we actually found that that people in a reaching task, essentially a, an intentional reach and point task, their movements actually smoothed out. Um, their movement got cleaner, it got smoother, and, um, and they were actually, they, they didn't have to reach as far. And the interesting thing about it, the hypothesis that we're working on is that their internal model, now that it had the information that it, it needed, it automatically could start correcting for error and start adding, had a, had a baseline for self-reference and, and improved movement. So that's what we're doing with our stroke colleagues. We're actually, um, so we're we're moving forward on that and see if we can actually expand that relatively limited study and see if we can actually get into gait, see if we can get into some different types of hand functions and really try to see if we can use this loudspeaker approach.
1: Well, Paul, thank you very much for joining us. This has been very insightful conversation and I appreciate your time today. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much.
0: This concludes this episode of Neuro Pathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.com. ClevelandClinic.org slash Nero or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.